Morning, church. Good to see everybody. Great to hear everybody singing with such passion. If you're a guest with us this morning, special welcome to you. My name is Kelly. I serve as senior pastor. Glad you're here. Hope you feel quickly at home. Let's turn together to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 5. After being away from this book for a month, we're going to jump back into it this morning. If this is your first time with us in Deuteronomy, then you should know that Moses is getting Israel ready to enter the promised land. They are poised as a nation on the edge of the Jordan River, ready to get ready, getting ready to cross over, go in, receive their inheritance. But before that, they do that, Moses uh, speaks a final word to them, has a final charge to them. What might that be? After 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, what do you suppose would be on Moses' heart and mind for this nation that he has carried with him for 40 years of difficulty? What will he choose to emphasize? What does he believe is uh, most urgent for them if they're going to go into the land and fully enjoy all that God has for them? The short answer is God's law. That's what's on his mind. That's what's on his heart. That's what he believes they need to be reminded of if they're going to go in and make the most of their inheritance, if they're going to receive it, something they've waited so, so long to receive, if they're going to receive it and enjoy it, and, and they're going to thrive as a nation in this new land, he offers them God's law. And the same is true for us as well. Of vital importance to our receiving and fully enjoying our inheritance in Christ. That is, to make the most of the life that we have this afternoon, right? The week ahead, the months ahead, the years ahead. To make the most of life now, here, as well as the best preparation for eternity. To know God's law, embrace God's law. Look at how the psalmist sings of the blessings and the power of God's law in God's people's lives. Who wouldn't want these realities? I'm going to read Psalm 1. It's the introduction to the, the hymn book of Israel. Psalm 1, blessed is the one who doesn't walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or seats, sit in the company of mockers, right? It's poetry. It's poetic. Don't, don't uh, walk, stand, or sit in the way of sinners. Kind of a, 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 a thrice repeated, <laughs> be careful the direction you go. Blessed is the one, instead, verse 2, whose delight, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, and who meditates on his law day and night. In what do we delight? On what do we meditate day and night? That person who delights in God's law, who meditates on it day and night, that person's like a tree planted by streams of waters, never runs out of nourishment, a tree which yields its fruit in season, highly productive, a tree whose leaf doesn't wither, doesn't suffer decay. Whatever they do, prospers. Who wouldn't want that? 
Blessed simply means happy or well-suited. Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord. In what are we delighting? They'll have steady streams of nourishment in their soul. They'll be productive in every season. They'll be spared experiences of decay and disease and death. They're going to prosper. And I realize, I understand that these are song lyrics. This is poetry. And so it must be understood in that respect, right? With that mindset, which means our interpretive framework must understand the rhetorical nature of this genre. But this same type of imagery is used by our Savior. In John chapter 4, he says, whoever comes to him are going to have springs of living water welling up inside. This is our Savior. Barring from Psalm 1, whoever delights in the law of the Lord is like a tree planted by streams of water. Jesus says you'll have springs welling up inside. And if if you're following Christ, I'm sure you've had that experience. A joy unexplained, a peace unexplained, a supply for life, unexplained, powerful, unending. Jesus later said in John 15, this is for my Father's glory. What's for his Father's glory? He says that we'd bear a lot of fruit, that we would bear our fruit in season, that we'd be productive. This is for God's glory. Again, he references this agrarian metaphor out of Psalm 1. So our Savior picks up on these same images and says this is the exact experience promised to those in increasing measure who trust in him. I point this out because I'm afraid that we may discount the value of the law. I'm afraid we hear the psalmist say, delight yourself in the law, meditate on it day and night, and we respond, well, that was an Old Testament reality, and we're a New Testament people. Yet look at what our Savior says about the law. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. We're going to look at the second commandment today. Christ fulfilled the second commandment in an irrefutable fashion. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. To whom might we teach the second commandment in the days ahead? How might we keep the second commandment in the days ahead, so that we're considered one of the great in the kingdom of heaven. As followers of Jesus, we can say along with the psalmist, we can sing, and just as we sang this morning, we can sing, blessed are those who delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night. In fact, my goal this morning, at least to some degree, is to help us foment a delight in the law of the Lord. What are we delighting in? You know, the, the original uh, Hebrew word translated as delight in Psalm 1 captures this notion. It's a notion of extreme pleasure. What do we take pleasure in? Extreme satisfaction, joy. And what do we find joy? Much like you might delight in a hobby or a friendship or beautiful weather or our children. 
There is a delight for us in the law of the Lord that promises us nourishment, escape from decay, productivity in this life, fruitfulness. It's a delight that brings a similar life-giving satisfaction. So Deuteronomy chapter 5, about a month ago, it's been a month break since we've been in Deuteronomy, but about a month ago, Pastor John Vanderbilt did um, the first command. So I'm going to reread the first command, and then we'll make our way into the second command. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 1, it's on the screen. Moses summoned all Israel and said, Hear, Israel, the decrees of the law I declare in your hearing today. Learn them. Be sure to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. And if you're an underliner, underline covenant. I'm going to come back to it. It was not with our ancestors that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face, underline face to face, out of the fire on the mountain. Then he says parenthetically, at that time, I stood between the Lord and you to declare to you the word of the Lord because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up on the mountain. And he said, quote, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first command. You shall have no other gods before me. It's generally thought that the first and the second command are actually a couplet of sort. The first being a prohibition against worshiping any other gods. Yahweh's to have primacy over all other gods. Which isn't to say that there are other gods, but just that there's this primacy. In the ancient world, there was a, a, a long-standing thought that there was a, um, a divine council of gods. He said, no, I'm, pri- I'm to be premier first among all gods. Worship no other gods. Recognize no other gods. And then the second command is don't make any images of me. No mediators are to stand in for me and represent my presence among you. So on the screen is going to be the first command and then followed after that the second First command, you shall have no other gods before me. Second command, verse 8, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, I'd understand, underline jealous, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. The inference is making idols is an act of hate towards our God. So punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who make idols, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. I would underscore uh, the word love in verse 10. I'll come back to it. In what ways might we delight in the second command? How can we feel extreme pleasure, satisfaction, joy this morning? because of the second command. Where is the experience of nourishing waters, wells springing up inside us that spur us on to be highly productive and prosperous spiritually and that help us to escape decay? This is the promise of Psalm 1, those who delight in the law of the Lord. Well, we can take delight in God's jealous character. So if you underline jealous, let me camp there for just a minute. 
This doesn't mean that God is filled with envy. Without a doubt, jealousy is a bad thing in our lives. We rightly refer to jealousy as the green-eyed monster. It's an ugly thing. But that's because our jealousy is always driven by selfish motives. And the consequence is that it, it breaks down relationships. But jealousy in the person of God is never a bad thing. God's jealousy is always driven by the goodness in his character. God is morally perfect. He dwells in unapproachable light, we're told in the New Testament. There's no shadow of change in him. He's perfect. Uh, incorruptible. And so when he has jealousy, the jealousy is, is for his glory, but it's, it's for our good. It's in our best interest. It's not a competitive jealousy. It's a, it's a longing to bless us. So we can take great delight in the reality that he doesn't want us to make any image that represents him, but rather he wants to relate to us directly. Idolatry in the ancient world served a mediatorial role. The statues made represented the deity and was meant to mediate the deity's presence among worshipers. God doesn't want that experience. He doesn't want anything to come between us and him. Remember Moses' description of the Israelites' experience when they received the law. He said in verse 4, the Lord spoke to you face to face. That's the experience God wants with us. He wants to know us, be known by us. He doesn't want anything to come between us. God wants us to, be, to know us intimately, personally. He wants to dwell with us physically. He doesn't want any image made by hands standing in for him, distracting us from him, drawing our attention away from him. He wants our full focus upon him. God's jealousy is best understood as what a spouse might feel if their spouse wasn't fully committed to them or was distracted by other things and not focusing fully upon them. I'll give you an example. I'm sure you've, you've heard the quip that a picture's worth a thousand words. I'd like to show you a picture of Sherry and I when we were 12. <laughs> it was also our wedding day. Just joking. Someone said, well, how old were you when you were married? Uh, 22. And uh, the picture on the right is a picture uh, in the week after on our honeymoon. Pictures are great, aren't they? But I don't, I don't want Sherry to love a picture of me as much as, you know, at 53, she might prefer the picture on the screen. I don't want to love a picture of me. I don't want the substitute to come between us. I want her to know me. We want to know each other. Not an image of us, but a real relationship. The image is a, is a poor substitute for the reality in, in all its maturity today. Good, you're laughing with me. An image is worth a thousand words, but it falls far short of having the intimacy available. And God wants to know us personally. In the same type of image, uh, a relationship rather that a husband and wife share, that's why in the New Testament, the believing community is called the bride of Christ. That's not lost on us. 
He's inviting us into relationship in that same respect to be known by us and to know us. In fact, that is the very context in which the law is given. The context is covenant relationship, legally binding, much like a marriage situation, legally binding. Verse 2 of chapter 5, the Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. The relationship is this covenantal commitment. He loves us like a husband loves a wife, and a wife loves a husband. More importantly, he loves us as a perfect husband would love the most flawed and broken wife. Let that wash over you. There's something to delight in there. He loves us not just as any husband would love a wife, not just as any wife would love a husband, to imperfect people coming together. No, he loves us perfectly. That's who he is. We are the bride of Christ, and he loves us despite our flaws, our brokenness, our propensity, in fact, to serve idols and get distracted and give our attention to lesser things He's wholeheartedly devoted to us, wants nothing to come between us, nothing to be a substitute for our attention and affection. Secondly, we could also take great delight in God's love, not simply because he's jealous for us and longs for us in a perfect fashion, but because he loves us perfectly. We learn in verse 9 that he punishes those who make idols, who make substitutes, who bow down to substitutes, who worship created things rather than the creator. And we can make an idol of anything. In fact, the best idols are made of God's gifts. The wealth he gives us, the relationships he gives us. The best idols, and I mean that tongue in cheek, the best idols are the gifts he gives us. And we begin worshiping the gifts rather than the giver. Yet he loves us. It's true, he punishes those who make idols, he says in verse 9, to the third and fourth generation. If you do some scholarly reading and the commentaries on verse 9, uh, the third and fourth generation in the ancient world would have been considered a family household unit. What is in mind there is those that are idolaters who make images, that they're their family bears the consequences. You know, sin affects uh, most dramatically the ones we love. My sin affects my spouse, my kids first and foremost. That's what the author is saying here. Moses is saying here, no, it, where there's idolatry, the, the family suffers to the third and fourth generations. It's this, this household is what's in mind here. But to those who aren't idolaters, who have a face-to-face -face relationship based on the covenant of God with his people, those he lavishes love on for a thousand generations. Of course, that's metaphorical. It's meant to, to denote it's an unending love. It's an incorruptible love. It's an unlimited love, a thousand generations. He loves us. In fact, the Hebrew word translated as love and I like to write notes in my margins. Uh, 
is a very unique and important Hebrew word that everybody should know. It's the word hesed, H-E-S-E-D. It's on the screen. We can take delight in the uncommon nature of God's love for us. Yes, he's jealous for us. He, he wants a face-to-face, -face, intimate relationship with us and nothing to come between us. But then it's not just that he's jealous for us, but he loves us in a, a very unique way. It's this hased love. And this Hebrew word is translated in any number of ways in our English Bible. It's translated as kindness in some places. It's up to the interpreters to decide what's the best way, given the context, to, to uh, capture the meaning of the author. In, in verse 10, it's the word love. But the problem is, English speakers, they, like ourselves, we love tacos, and we love chocolate, and we love beautiful days, and we love the beach. And it gets lost on us. So we need to understand there's a range of meaning for Hebrew words, and we lose the meaning if we're not careful. This word has said could be captured by he shows kindness to a thousand generations. Loving kindness, steadfast love, mercy, trustworthiness, loyalty, loyal love. There's the covenant nature of it. All of these have been used to translate Hased. Loving kindness. Hased has both feelings elements to it. It's, it's like being in love, what you, you feel as you're falling in love, this affection. But it also has this legally binding, based on a promise love. Unending, unflinching love, enduring love. Of the 246 times this word is used in Scripture, it most often, the vast majority is, is a vertical, God-loving humanity. This is how God relates to his people. Loyally, despite our sinfulness, for our benefit, for his glory. And when the original author wrote the word hased, the original audience would have heard all of this. They would have grasped the, the height, the depth, the width, the length, the vast beauty, the delight of the love that God has for us as he prohibits idolatry. So we can take delight in God's jealousy for us. He wants nothing to come between us. He wants intimacy with us. We can take delight in the nature of the love he has for us, both an affection and an enduring promise-keeping love. He's going to remain faithful to us. Finally, we can take delight in Christ who fulfilled the second commandment, who kept the requirement of the law, who fulfilled it, he is, frankly, the image of God. It shouldn't be lost on us. We should make the most of it in our New Testament context that Christ is the image of God. Colossians is on the screen. This is Paul's description. The Son is the image. Don't make any images. I'm going to send my image. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, meaning he, the, he has primacy over all creation. Not that he was the first human born, but of all that's in creation, he has preeminent importance, the firstborn 
For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in this man, the image of God, incarnate. You shall make, not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. That's verse 8. Deuteronomy chapter 4, one chapter earlier, it gets, Moses gets more specific. He says, don't make anything in the form of a man or a woman to capture Yahweh's image. Don't make anything that looks like an animal or a bird or a fish or the sun or the moon or the stars. We can't illustrate God. God's going to come to us and show himself to us. In Hebrews, we're told, chapter 12, verse 2, fix your eyes on Jesus. What's the difference between making an idol to represent God and focusing on the incarnation of God? Well, remember, God doesn't want us to make idols because he doesn't want a mediator between us. Christ is our mediator. God himself represents us. He mediates his own presence to us. He wants to dwell with us, relate to us face to face. So desperately, in fact, that he came physically to earth. Remember, I started this morning saying that of a vital importance to receiving and fully enjoying your inheritance in Christ, our inheritance in Christ, both now and getting ready for eternity, is understanding the law, embracing the law, delighting in the law, meditating on the law day and night. And that's certainly clearly seen in the second commandment as Christ is the image of God. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus said in John 14, 9, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The theology of incarnation which ancient idolaters believed in and desperately longed for. That's why they were fashioning idols. Moses goes up on the mountain in Exodus. Aaron is pressured by the people, the priest of God, pressured by the people, and he makes these golden calves. He says to the people, these are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. Many scholars believe Aaron actually wanted to represent Yahweh to the people in tangible form. He wasn't looking for a substitute. These aren't foreign gods. He said, no, this is Yahweh. Yahweh's actually come. He's dwelled among us. John chapter 17 was the passage we prayed this morning in, in the pre-service prayer meeting. It's called the, the, uh, it's the prayer that Christ prayed before he's arrested long prayer, the entire chapter is a prayer, and he, he begins it by addressing the Father, and he says, and now, Father, glory, he's praying, so you get this window into the prayer life of Jesus, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began, eternally existing, Jesus, the incarnate one. The real danger in idolatry is that we, we become like idols rather than like our creator. In 1 John, as John's trying to talk about um, what he experienced as Christ came, he says, in 1 John, he says, that which was from the beginning, Jesus, 
Jesus said in John 17, verse 5, give me the glory that I had with you before I, before I left heaven. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. We proclaim God incarnate, what he's saying. The life appeared, the life, not a life, the life, the author of life. We've seen it, testified to it, we proclaim it to you, the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us and our fellowships with the Father and with the Son. Our ears have heard it, Jesus. Our eyes have seen Jesus, our hands have touched Jesus. That's what we're proclaiming. God's come in the flesh. Life has come. The life has come. The author of life has come. The one who had grace and mercy on us this morning to wake us from slumber. He sustains creation. Go ahead and read the rest of Colossians chapter 1. He holds all things together, Christ does. That you take your next breath is a mercy of God shown towards us in Christ. Look how the psalmist describes idolaters. Psalm 135, the idols of the nations, they're silver and gold, they're made of human hands. They have mouths but can't speak. They have uh, eyes but can't see. They have ears but can't hear, nor is there breath in them. In other words, there's no life in them. In 1 John, John says the life appeared. Christ came. Those who make them will be like them. So also those who trust in them. C.S. Lewis, when he talks about discipline and he's talking about the value of discipline, why would we discipline our flesh and why would we live contrary to the way the world lives? He says, discipline brings clarity, indulgence brings a fog into our lives. And if you've ever been caught up in an addiction, then you know the fog that descends upon you the deeper into your addiction you get. The problem with idols for us is we become like them. We become blind, deaf, and mute. The value of Christ is that we see, hear, and proclaim the truth. That's the goodness of God by which we have life. We say no to the flesh and the worldly desires not because we don't have the desires, not because those desires to participate in sin don't actually reflect longings given to us by God, but because there's life in Christ, in Christ alone. The good news is, as we fix our eyes on Jesus, the image of God, then all the blessings that are promised in Psalm 1 become ours in increasing measure. We are trees planted by streams of water. We have nourishment that is supernatural. Our leaves do not wither. We have the hope, the certainty that we will escape decay. There's an eternal hope that's grander and greater than anything this world has to offer. We are productive, not by our, we bear fruit, to use the biblical language, not by our own power, but by the power that works within us. John 15, he says, it's to my Father's glory, you bear a lot of fruit. And he says, take, take note, apart from me, you can do nothing. 
We bear fruit because the streams are flowing in us, the presence of God with us. I said in first service, and and I want to say again, maybe the jealousy of God for us and the intimacy that God longs to have with us and the love he has for us feels way too, feels intimidating. For some, as they hear that, they're keenly aware of their sin. The intimacy, the intimacy that he longs for can quickly, when we hear it, God wants to dwell with us and he knows us and wants to be known by us. It can overwhelm us because then we become aware of the sin that's in our hearts and minds. Isaiah had this very experience in chapter six of his prophecy. He says, woe to me for I'm a sinful man. I have unclean lips and I live among a people with unclean lips. He's aware of his sin as he's brought into the presence of God. Folks, if you're being keenly, made keenly aware of your sin, acknowledge it and then thank God for Christ. If as you find yourself delighting in the law of the Lord, you're realizing that there are idols all over the place that you're prone, prone to wander, you're prone to latching onto and giving your focus to, if you're keenly aware of the sin in your heart, don't deny the bad news. The good news is so good because the bad news is so bad. Don't deny the bad news. Don't pretend that sin isn't there. Thank God for Christ. Move on to Christ. Acknowledge the sin and bask in the the hesed love of God, the covenantal promise kept by God towards us in Christ. Despite all that we've done, are doing, and will do in the future, he loves us perfectly. Pray for us. Father, you're good to us. Let your grace and mercy wash over us. Move us away from idols and towards the intimate fellowship. Give us the springs of water welling up to eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.